Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with neurosurgeon Dr. James Chandler. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Waymaker Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Dr. James Chandler is vice chair and professor of neurological surgery at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. He is also the founder and surgical director of the Lou and Jean Melnati Brain Tumor Institute of the Robert H. Comprehensive Cancer Center. Today, he'll be discussing his path to become a brain surgeon, where his passion for medicine came from, and so much more. Let's get started. Hi. I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker. And today on the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have the privilege of having the founder and surgical director of the Manati Brain Institute, also professor and vice chair of the Department of Neurological Surgery, Dr. James Chandler. Welcome, Dr. Chandler. Thank you for, for having me. It's uh, truly an honor to, to be with you and Congratulations on this uh, amazing forum. I've been following along the the progress and the evolution, and it's it's a very impactful forum that uh, I'm honored to be a part of. Thank you for being with us. Now, Dr. Chandler, uh, most people always say to someone who is very smart, but you're not a brain surgeon, but you really are a brain surgeon. How and when did that come to your mind? At what stage of life did you start thinking about being a brain surgeon? Or was this sort of an evolution of your uh, professional career? Yeah, I would say that it was more an evolution in that early on, uh, high school, uh, I enjoyed the sciences and I thought it might be nice to be a doctor. And so when I went away to college, I took up a pre-med major, but between my first and second year of college, uh, the brother right under me was hit by a car and he was paralyzed from the neck down. And he was cared for by a black neurosurgeon by the name of Charles Mose uh, at Howard University. And my mother, being the, the typical proud mom, said, you know, my son is a really good student would you mind if he came and spent time with you because maybe he'd like to be a brain surgeon one day and dr mose uh had me round with him invited me to the operating room he had a woman going blind and i saw him make an incision from here to here pull the face down take off the skull go underneath the brain under a microscope, peeled this tumor off of the lady's optic nerves, and then later was sitting at her bedside next to her, talking to her, and she was reporting that she could see better. And so after you see something like that, you think that'd be kind of cool to do. And so I went back to college and took up a major in neurobiology and, and exposure to the brain, the mind, psychology, and I found it all fascinating to the point that when I went into medical school. I went in with the clear plan to become a neurosurgeon. Now, there are a lot of different areas of neurosurgery. 
most neurosurgeons will focus on spine disease. A lot of people didn't know that. They thought it's orthopedics, but a lot of neurosurgeons focus on, on spine disease. There are movement disorders like Parkinson's disease and epilepsy. There is cerebrovascular disease, so stroke, aneurysms, AVMs, and then there are tumors, which is my subspecialty area. And the last thing I'll say in terms of my journey to where I'm at, in my last year of training, as I had to decide which subspecialty area I would focus on, uh, another tragedy hit. My nephew, uh, the firstborn nephew to the family, lost function in one of his arms and in the ER was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And uh, fortuitously, I had a relationship with Ben Carson, who I reached out to because this was in the Maryland area, and, and, and Ben operated on him. But despite Ben's excellent surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, he died nine months later at the age of seven. And uh, I, I believe that everything happens for a reason. And losing my nephew really uh, has given me uh, empathy and sympathy for families and, and, and patients diagnosed with brain tumors and the, the, the passion that evolved in me during that whole experience I've applied to, to my practice. And though I lost my nephew, it's resulted in me saving thousands of lives over the years. And, and so life tragedies kind of brought me to the, to the place that I'm at now. And as a side note, my brother who was paralyzed from the neck down, he had what's called a spinal cord contusion. And over the course of nine to 12 months, he regained about 90% of the function back. Wow. So, so Dr. Chandler, these sort of personal tragedies sort of drove you into deeper into medicine and into the field that you're in today. That's I did not I did not expect that story. And I've known you for a while. I had never heard that. So yeah. wow. That's 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 great learning for me and for our listening audience. So 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 Dr. Chandler, how many years of education does it take to get to where you are today? I looked at online and some of your background and I saw so many universities there I got confused I'm like where did he graduate from and what are all these other universities here for tell uh, us about that no that's a that's a it's a great question so you know after high school you're looking at four years of college I went to uh, University of California at Berkeley for college and then you're looking at four years of medical school and I went to the University of Maryland in Baltimore and then you have to do a residency and the neurosurgery residency is seven years. So then there were seven years after medical school. And then the additional universities that you saw is I decided based on the experience I described to you to subspecialize and in, in, in taking care of complex tumors of the brain. And so I did fellowships, one in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and then another one at George Washington University. And then in 97, uh, after, I don't know, 16, 17 years, came on faculty here at Northwestern. And so you, you also teach. Correct. Or a, a big part of my, 
my responsibility is to to teach the next generation and so that includes both medical students but more commonly uh, trainees so every day i have neurosurgery residents kind of in an apprenticeship situation in the operating room and then also in the outpatient clinic seeing patients with me we were talking uh offline and we talked about there are probably less than uh, 60 uh, African-Americans who do what you do in this country. Has that increased over time or is it sort of at a standstill? Well, I wish I could say that it had increased or was at a standstill, but the, the facts are that the numbers are declining. Fewer and fewer black males are going to medicine getting into medical school and then matriculating on to do residencies such as neurosurgery. And it's actually hit crisis level. Uh, here at, at my particular medical school, we've uh, recognized that enrollment has dropped from 10 to 12 max per entering class to about two to three. And, you know, we can track this back all the way to the elementary school level where where kids are 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 not being encouraged to to go into science and so we've tried to create these pipelines that take us all the way back to the elementary school middle school and, and give uh, children in particular black males uh, a path towards medicine and is it the the cost of entry that or is it just the lack of interest or the lack of knowing about the opportunity it's a it's a combination of both you know i was fortunate to have uh, parents who invested a lot in me and, and supported me on 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 my journey and uh, a good mentor in, in dr mose uh, most young children don't have the, the parents with the financial resources to help them through college medical school and beyond and then they don't have you know, the, the mentors. And that's why forums like this are so important. Hopefully, uh, some young man with an interest in pursuing a career in medicine or poten potentially neurosurgery will see this and, and reach out and uh, could serve as a, a mentor to that individual uh, and or others. And if if if... Do you need to start this process, Dr. Chandler? Is, is this a high school or do you need prior to that to start thinking about medicine? Because when I think about the type of classes you have to take in high school and in college, you have to kind of be a pretty good student in grammar school and elementary school. That's, that's true, though I would say that there, there are many individuals I've come across who are, who are late bloomers. Uh, you know, you could be uh, uh, an average student uh, up until your last couple of years of, of, of college and, and do well and potentially get into medical school. What I, what I tell applicants, medical school applicants looking to get into neurosurgery is the most important thing is to have, have, be a hard worker, uh, have compassion, have grit. Uh, being brilliant helps, but it's not mandatory. 
that's great. So how do you develop, uh, I talked to another uh, friend of mine who's in the medical profession and he said, Louis, it's gotta be bigger than the money, bigger than the title. You have to have the compassion to be able to be a doctor. Can you talk about that for a minute? I think that uh, there's a balance, uh, you know, it's important to have a general kind of care and compassion for other human beings, altruism, uh, if you will. But at the same time, you want to be uh, acknowledged and rewarded for all that, that you do. And, um, you know, most modern day physicians are coming out with, you know, a half a million to uh, three quarters of a million dollars of debt. And uh, so the days of, of uh, you know, going into a primary care field and being able to live comfortably are, are gone. It, there's, there's more, there's increasing pressure to, to be in a subspecialized discipline just to be able to pay off your, your student loans and live a comfortable life with your, your family. You know, the the, the fact of the matter is most physicians put in longer hours than the average uh, worker. And at times it can be very emotionally and, and physically strenuous. I, I know people have come across doctors that they think are a little short or, or callous. And uh, what I would say is if you're dealing in particular in my field with a lot of death, despair, tragedy, uh, people complaining because they're in pain or otherwise suffering, your your way of dealing with it sometimes is to, to put up a little wall because otherwise you'll just be decimated emotionally. And that's what people perceive as a doctor who seems cold and indifferent. On the flip side, if you absorb all that, you become wounded. And when you're a wounded doctor, patients can feel and see that. And so the, the real challenge is to be somewhere in the middle. But I want to touch base on the, the motivation uh, around being uh, a, a doctor, being a, a neurosurgeon in my case. And it's something that I shared with you offline. And, and that is, I, I wish everyone could experience the inner fulfillment and gratification you get in, in my role as you bring somebody to, to safety, somebody dangling off a branch over a cliff 200 feet above rocks, and you pull them up to safety, and it's the way they look at you. No words, just the way they look at you. And then you walk and do that to the next person, the next person, the next person. And it's a, it's a inner fulfillment and satisfaction that, that can't be explained by words. And I wish everybody could experience it just once. The, the challenge, however, is every now and then, as you're pulling them up and looking at them in their eyes, they slip through your fingers to their death, the rocks below, and they're looking at you as they go. And you have to process that and then go to the next person and do the right thing. And it takes a little while to 
work that out in, in your mind and, and be able to be at your best despite uh, tremendous loss. On average, Dr. Chandler, how many surgeries do you do per week, per month, on average? Right. So it, it's, it's variable, but I would say between five and, and 10 and in, in my career, uh, I've done about 6,500 surgeries. 6,500? 6,500. 6, uh, I've been uh, blessed with a very busy practice. And as you know, the, the more reps you get in, uh, the better you become at, at doing something. And so I have a lot of wonderful people and support around me that allows me to do things in a very efficient way. And I, I probably am able to do more than, than many because of that. So with a person who's doing that many surgeries and you've explained to us about the sort of responsibility and the stress that comes along with that, what do you do in your personal life to sort of balance some of that out so it doesn't drive you crazy and overwhelm you? Well, I'll tell you that the first and foremost thing that I do is I work on my spirit and I maintain my spirit and I do a lot of praying. I just came from an operation and a young woman with a difficult tumor in a deep area of the brain. And I was praying for a good 30 minutes that, that God gave me some guidance. And I have found that that prayer gives me peace, gives me understanding, gives me gives me purpose. Uh, I enjoy traveling. I enjoy the uh, occasional cigar. Uh, and I enjoy uh, tremendously time with time with colleagues and, and friends. And uh, usually that's over a, a nice dinner. So that's how I decompress and, and reboot. My, my daughter is getting a banana. She's five now where, where she helps to recharge me as well. That's great. So you, you've mentioned these tumors. What generally creates a tumor on the brain? How does it happen? The brain is sort of, we think it protected under the skull. So it, what happens that tumors appear on the brain? You know, it's not too dissimilar than tumors anywhere else in the body, usually just a random event. I suspect at some point in time, we'll be able to tie this to environmental exposures and some genetic aberration, but that hasn't been sorted out. There is a particular type of tumor called a, a meningioma, which actually is the most common primary tumor in the brain that is associated with radiation exposure. So individuals who may have had radiation for tonsils or acne back in the day, uh, we see a lot of these individuals developing these these meningiomas in the brain. But other than that association, it's it's purely random. And that's a good question because it's the first thing people always ask, you know, why me? Was it a head trauma? Did I do something? Did I cell phone? And it's none of the above. It's just uh, just a random event. So, so, Dr. Chandler, we here at Waymaker, we believe that every successful person has had at least one Waymaker in their life. Tell us about some of the Waymakers that sort of have helped you ascend to where you are today. I would say without question, the, the first and foremost would be 
by my father. Uh, 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 you know, intellect is in large part genetic, and my intellect I garnered from uh, my father primarily, my mother secondarily. Uh, but my spirit, my my faith comes in large part from from my mother. So my my parents uh, were instrumental in me becoming who I am. And I, I mentioned Dr. Charles Mose, uh, because despite the fact that I had that family, that parental foundation, and they had the utmost confidence in me, it takes a while to build up the confidence in yourself to achieve certain goals. And seeing uh, Dr. Mose, this this, this black man doing these uh, amazing uh, surgical procedures and the level of uh, dedication and, and reverence and respect. When you see it, you're like, wow, maybe, maybe I can do this. And so that was, he was an important way maker for me as well. So I, I would say those, those three are the most foundational way makers in my life. If you think back, Dr. Chandler, to when you were 18 years old, what is some of the advice you wish someone had gave you uh, that now you know through experience and trial and error and everything, if you knew at 18, what are like three things you wish you had known at 18 years old? Um, I was going to say something about a uh, love life, but I'll leave that to the side and just focus. <laughs> focus on other stuff. I, I, I think to uh, uh, try and maintain balance, it, it was it was very uh, easy to kind of get sucked into just being focused on um, academics and kind of streamlining my academic focus. Uh, I wish that I had uh, taken some courses in anthropology and English uh, and and kind of create a more well-rounded foundation for myself because you think at some point in life you're going to have time to do that, but I still haven't. So that would have been that would have been uh, something uh, very helpful. Uh, another bit of advice is you know you you become who you associate with, and I had some sketchy associations that. Uh, at different times, uh, compromised me. And uh, the last thing I would say is uh, don't let your failures uh, define you, but let them refine you. And I, you know, like many people, I had my failures along the way. And uh, it wasn't clear to me early on that I could overcome them. And and succeed. I had professors in college tell me, you know, uh, you ought to maybe think about a career in nursing. I, I wouldn't consider neurosurgery if I were you. It's, it's, it's a very competitive field. So uh, those are the things that I, I would advise a, an 18 year old me. Well, Dr. Chell, I've asked this question a lot. And they say, when did you know? you had made it? What point of your career uh, that all of the doubts kind of went away and you were clear that you could do this 
and that you were on your way. You know, young people ask me this all the time. And, and usually I, I have a real bad answer that supports them. Because <laughs> the answer that they're looking for is that it's younger rather than it was older when I found out. So when in your career did you know that you had made it and you were clear on your way? You know, there are a lot of uh, hurdles that you have to clear in the, in the medical structure. And I would say uh, when I when I secured a position in neurosurgery, which was a, a very competitive position to land. You have hundreds and hundreds of the top students competing for one or two positions. And when I uh, landed the position actually here at Northwestern, this is where I trained. Uh, and uh, uh, I, was, I was excited about the city. I was excited about neurosurgery. I knew there was without doubt that I would I would matriculate through the program. So once I got in, uh, I felt a, a sense of relief and accomplishment like I had not experienced up to that point. And I don't know that I've experienced since. Wow. So Dr. Chandler, as we close the interview, uh, your specialty is, is, is surgery, brain surgery. But when you look at Black health in general, and you look at what our community has come through uh, with COVID, in your opinion, what is the state of Black health in this country today? There, there are a lot of issues. That's a great question. There are a lot of issues that revolve around brain health that, that plague our, our community in particular. Uh, and these are issues that I, I directly or indirectly address, uh, such as stroke, right? Where, where Black people are 50% more likely to have a stroke than, than white people and, and Black males, 70% more likely. And in fact, both of my parents uh, ultimately passed as a consequence of, of stroke. So it's a, it's a real difficult uh, problem in our community tied to diet and blood pressure and exercise and just generally taking good care of yourself. And the, the other issue that I hear about almost on a daily basis, uh, friends and others reaching out to me is dementia, be it Alzheimer's, uh, multi-infarct dementia, which just means a lot of little strokes that contribute to a dementia state. I, I think that the, the dementia is, as people are living longer, dementia is becoming a, a, a really significant health crisis because it's such a difficult problem to manage. And it's, they're, they're a difficult patient base to, to, to take care of. It just really challenges physicians and, and, and family members because there's not a lot you can do. So to dementia, is this something that is growing in our community or has it always been there? It just wasn't diagnosed or recognized. I think it's a, a little bit of both, uh, probably more unrecognized. You know, we all had uh, uh, the Aunt Ruthie or Aunt Mabel who was senile, right? Crazy old and so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, now we understand that they, they, you know, it wasn't necessarily senility. It was 
Alzheimer's dementia uh, or some other type of dementia. But I do think that it is being diagnosed with increasing frequency because our diagnostic tools are, are better and, and people are living longer. And it's usually at advanced age where these dementias manifest themselves. And the final question, Dr. Chandler, the affordability of healthcare for our community, is it more affordable today? Are we missing some things that we just don't understand or don't know about? How do we sort of access, whether it's capital, dollars, whatever term you wanna put on it, to have greater education, greater access to people like yourself and other doctors? What would you recommend to our audience to sort of say, take advantage of the healthcare that exists today? Well, you know, the Affordable Healthcare Act really kind of ensures that anybody uh, can secure some form of coverage. And the reality is uh, most major hospital systems and uh, academic medical centers will, will accept uh, that form of insurance. And in fact, even if you don't have insurance, if you come into an emergency room, every hospital has to treat you. The, the real onus is, is on us as healthcare providers to, to take measures to, to bring down costs because right now the pharmaceutical companies, the various uh, instrumentation companies are, are driving up bills. I, I did a, a surgery, a uh, straightforward brain surgery uh, where a patient was in the hospital for two or three days a few weeks back. And uh, the, the bill for that which is including all the supplies, hospital stay, was $270,000. Now, I, I spoke to a former resident of mine who is uh, abroad in one of the Eastern European countries where he started a hospital. And he told me that for the same operation, all in expenses were $7,000. So the, the point is there, there's a lot that we can do on, on the provider side to make, make healthcare more affordable uh, to, to all patients. And, and that's something that we, we talk about and we, we think about on a regular basis. But uh, you know, uh, my doors and, and, and many physicians' doors are open to anybody insured or uninsured. And it's just a matter of doing your research to figure out what healthcare facilities accept your particular coverage, even if it's free coverage. Dr. Chandler, we thank you so much for this interview. Uh, it's been informative and enlightening, and we appreciate all that you're doing. And we pray that you continue to have the strength and knowledge and understanding to keep doing it. So thank you for, so much for sharing your journey uh, with the Waymaker audience. You're very welcome. Thank you. And, and, and thank you for, for this initiative. It's, it's amazing work that you're doing. And I appreciate the prayers because they work. Thank you. All right. Take care, Lewis. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and James Chandler. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your Waymaker Journal at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. 
subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode. 